This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, I trust you're doing well on this uh, semi-sunny day. Uh, the big news today, and it happened just a short while ago, is that the provincial government has shuffled a number of cabinet duties. And you may have seen the news this week that um, Derek Bragg uh, has been diagnosed with cancer, and he uh, uh, posted that to his uh, Facebook account over the last day or so. So it doesn't come as a surprise to some that this uh, might have happened today. I, uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan is at uh, Government House for that announcement, and he'll be joining us shortly. But I can tell you uh, some of the new ministerial duties that are happening. Elvis Loveless moves from... Um, uh, transportation and infrastructure to fisheries, forestry, and aquaculture. That is the portfolio held previously by Derek Bragg. Uh, John Abbott moves from edu- uh, sorry, uh, children, seniors, and social development to transportation and infrastructure. Crystalline Howell moves to education from municipal affairs. John Haggie moves from education to municipal affairs, so they're trading portfolios. Paul Pike is being introduced into uh, the cabinet now as the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. And this is, I, I can't remember, and maybe uh, Richard Duggan will be able to tell us, but I can't remember if this has happened before, but we have Derek Bragg is now a minister without a portfolio, and I'm guessing that maybe because they're awaiting, uh, you know, his recovery and that kind of thing. But um, there you have it. Elvis Loveless moves to fisheries. John Abbott moves to transportation and infrastructure. Crystalline Howell to education. John Haggie to municipal affairs. Paul Pike to children, seniors, and social development. And Derek Bragg is a minister without a portfolio. So we'll have more details on that as uh, they become available and as Richard Duggan uh, frees himself up from the proceedings at Government House as we speak. Well, the Atlantic premiers met in PEI on Monday and the carbon tax set to be implemented on July the 1st was among the key topics for discussion. Yesterday, your VOCM mornings with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey heard from Premier Andrew Fury, who expressed frustration with Ottawa's all-or-nothing approach to the issue. Fury and his Atlantic Canadian counterparts have long called for Ottawa to re-examine federal policies that they say could result in a heavier cost burden for people in the region. The Atlantic Premiers met in PEI and uh, the carbon tax was high among the topics discussed. Premier Fury didn't pull any punches. He says Newfoundlanders and Labradorians not climate change deniers and they're willing to do their part to address climate change and reduce carbon emissions. But he disagrees with the approach taken by the federal government. And I uh, take great exception uh, to the federal minister always forcing this into a a dichotomous issue. Either you believe in exactly what we say or you don't believe in uh, climate change. That's completely illogical. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false dilemma. And it's as insulting to us as it is simplistic. Well, that's what the premier had to say. Opposition leader David Brazel joins me now. What do you think? 
Well, you know, I'm happy that the premier finally now is going to stand up and fight for what would be an injustice financially and a burden to the people of this province. But we've been after him for the last five months uh, to do something, knowing that this was coming and knowing that it wasn't a fair process for Newfoundland and Labrador and even all of Atlantic Canada. And it took his counterparts to push him to get to this point. You know, the fear here is it too late in the game for them to make changes to realize the impact it's going to have on the cost of everything for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and particularly those on fixed incomes. So, you know, while we welcome it, and I offered before, you know, almost a year ago, if there's an issue that affects the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, we would go in solidarity to Ottawa to fight to get what's an equal opportunity here for the people here and do us right. Uh, you know, I'm glad they're fighting it. Uh, I've already reached out to some of the other Atlantic premiers here to have a discussion about what can be done. Uh, you know, it's, it's disappointing it took this long, and it's disappointing that the federal government are not listening to... Uh, the needs of the people of this province. And keeping in mind, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador are very supportive of a green economy, of the environment itself. But we've done a lot of things here to keep the environment very healthy. And we're open to do other things, but not at the cost financially to a burden to the people of this province. So it's not just the carbon tax that the Premier is uh, raising here. He's also talking about this clean fuel surcharge and the impact it's going to have on the price of goods and services in Newfoundland and Labrador. Does that trouble you? Oh, very much so. And again, if you look at the the equity across the board, Newfoundland and Labrador are going to be hit the hardest. People, you know, provinces that have other financial abilities to sustain and, and are biggest polluters, Ontario and Quebec, are, are getting uh, less of an impact on this. So the goods and services, this is going to have an impact on every Newfoundland or Labradorian, but particularly those on fixed incomes, because there's no flexibility for them to absorb, you know, 8, 10, 12, and 15% increases on the cost of any product because it's going to have to be passed on uh, to the consumer. And that's just a reality of life. And I've talked to, to, to you know, uh, trucking companies who said as much as they'd like to be able to absorb it, they're, they're already now coming out of COVID working on a certain, you know, limited fixed uh, profit margins. They can't absorb this and it kills them to have to pass it on to the consumer, but they have no other choice. They need to be given a break. And the break here is that the, the tax that's going to be added here is not fair to this province and is going to have a more detrimental effect on us than anywhere else, just by the nature of our geography and where we're located. We already know the impact of the, uh, you know, that the cost of uh, rising cost of living has had on individuals across the province. Uh, Are you fearful of what's going to happen come uh, July the 1st? Oh, very much. I mean, people are going to have to make decisions. They've already had to do it because of the cost of living that's increased dramatically just on food. But there's going to be decisions made between heating their home in the winter or, you know, the medications, being able to take full-fledged medication that's prescribed for them or the quality of food they eat or just the basic stuff that they would do, leisure stuff or being able to, you know, do things for their grandkids or their kids, uh, you know, their social well-being. It's going to have a detrimental effect mentally on people and it's going to have a detrimental effect physically on people also. And, you know, it's going to hit everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm going to see businesses lay people off. That'll have to happen because their revenues won't be there to do it. Then that's going to have an impact on our economy, which affects everybody in this province. So what should happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, 
what should have happened in the past uh, is in the past. There should have been a stronger uh, lobby to ensure that this doesn't happen, doesn't happen. I would hope the four Atlantic provinces here now in unison uh, will lobby their counterparts, the MPs that are in Atlantic Canada, and the Prime Minister in his office to look at doing something that's more equitable and more fair to this region and has a minimal impact on the people of this province particularly and of the region itself. I mean, there's other ways that can things can be done here to offset, you know, doing our part for the environment as part of this process. Keeping in mind, Atlantic Canada, particularly Newfoundland and Labrador, are the, the least polluters. Uh, and keeping in mind, you know, things like Muskrat Falls should should give us uh, some green credits here for what we're doing on hydroelectric power and green energy as part of that process. So this can't be put on the backs of uh, the taxpayers and the citizens of this province because there's an, an agenda here that really doesn't meet its needs. Uh, when it comes to addressing the environment, there's a multitude of other things through education, through working with industry to uh, reduce the carbon emissions, to doing other things within our society that would be uh, more friendly to the environment and less of a financial burden on the people of this province particularly. David Brazel, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate this. Take care. And that's opposition leader David Brazel uh, responding to uh, Premier Andrew Fury's comments following that uh, meeting of Atlantic Premiers in PEI earlier in the week. Meanwhile, on another political front, Labrador MP Yvonne Jones is back in the House of Commons after undergoing treatment for breast cancer. It's her second battle with the disease, her first coming when she was a member of the House of Assembly. She made a triumphant return to the House of Commons yesterday to cheers and applause from her Thank you all for the warm welcome. I'm excited to be back in the House of Commons, back to work as a member of Parliament for Labrador and a parliamentary secretary to two amazing ministers of natural resources and northern affairs. Thank you colleagues, constituents, staff, family and friends for all your support and encouragement and patience as I successfully battled breast cancer for the second Here. time. messages and prayers, you lifted me up and your positive spirit was felt on every step of this journey. I want to express my deep gratitude to the Newfoundland and Labrador healthcare teams. These, uh, they never relent in their quest for a cure and they never relent in their service and commitment to their patients. The healthcare system in our province of Newfoundland and Labrador remains strong despite challenges because of the dedicated people we have who work in our health care system. I remind all Canadians of the significant process, progress that have been made in cancer research in our country and how important it is to support the cause for a cure. I encourage women to get regular monography testing and wellness screening. I am proof that early detection can save lives, but we must all do our part. During this journey to good health, Labradorians were always in my heart. And on June 24th at the Cancer Society's Relay for Life in Labrador, I will be ringing the bell of hope to celebrate this huge victory over cancer. And I hope that all other Canadians will have the opportunity to ring that bell of hope. There you have it. 
a standing ovation in the House of Commons yesterday for Labrador MP Yvonne Jones, who uh, came back after uh, her journey towards um, health and wellness. And she's going to be ringing that uh, bell of hope at the Cancer Centre. So that's uh, wonderful news to hear. Well, coming up, Premier Andrew Fury has shuffled his cabinet. We're hoping to hear from uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan as soon as he gets free from that assignment. Uh, So if we don't have a Right after the break, we will have them uh, during the show. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. And uh, Claudette, I know it's getting kind of dull and boring here now, but you and I have talked at length about the cold weather. And yesterday, of course, we had Environment Canada meteorologist David Neal, who confirmed our suspicions (laughs) uh, that the mean temperature this time of year, and when they talk about the mean temperature, they're talking about like the temperature, it's in the middle of what the high and the low is. Right. The mean temperature this year is 11 degrees. Uh, or or the normally this time of year is 11 degrees. Sorry. Oh, okay. So that would, that would take into account the lows right. at night and, and the, the highs. highs during the day. The mean temperature this year is below 8 yeah. degrees. Yeah. And today is is pretty good, um, but as you mentioned, this is not going to be the norm. No, <laughs> for the rest of the week. No, we're going back to the old RDF. So if you get a chance to go out and get that jog in, or walk, yes. or stroll, do or so. whatever you do, carpe diem today. Go out and get it done. Uh, I can see some lawn mowing in my husband's future. <laughs> well, as you know, um, and I've said this repeatedly, but I, I love to garden, and I decided to seek out a local expert to see whether or not it's just me having difficulty with the garden this year. Uh, Todd Boland is a horticulturalist with Munns Botanical Gardens. He joins me now. So we've got a bit of sunshine here now, but oh man, it's sorely been lacking, especially in this area of the province. Uh, I don't need to tell you, I've had a lot of trouble with my garden. I've been looking at the poor little carrot seeds that I've <laughs> I've sown and there's nothing happening. Um, is this a challenging year? Oh, there's no doubt about it. This has been one of the coldest Junes I can remember for many, many years. Uh, certainly we've been spoiled the last few years because we've actually had a bit of a spring. Um, so yeah, so a lot of our vegetables in the garden, I know at the botanical garden now, we've had seeds that have been sown in the ground for three weeks and still not a sign. So it's not just me. It's not what I'm doing. It's it's the weather. It's the weather. I mean, uh, the normal temperatures for this time of year now should be around 16 degrees. Um, and, you know, if we get 16 now, we'd say that was a really hot day. We've been struggling to get anything above single digits for pretty much the last two to three weeks. I noticed, too, the trees really struggling to bloom. Some are out. Some are still holding back. Yeah, and, you know, if this weather continues, as the fruit trees come into bloom, there's not going to be any pollinator activity. So uh, even if we do have a lot of blooms, um, we're not going to get very much fruit. You know, unless the weather gets warm enough for the insects to go around and do what they're supposed to do, then uh, I'm afraid it's it's going to be a very, very poor fruit set, at least here in St. John's area. So is there anything a gardener can do um, to, you know, mitigate in any way weather or, or sort of, um, I guess, redirect their efforts? Oh, there's, there's not a lot. I mean, you know, when it comes to gardening, um, you know, it's such a large scale that it's difficult to try to create warmer areas within your garden. 
Now, some people, you know, we might utilize if they're really keen, they might try to start the veggies, veggies a little bit earlier in a greenhouse situation. Um, but then, you know, once they get out into the garden, this weather's staying cool, they're just sit- sitting there. Um, I know friends of mine that have actually put tomatoes and cucumbers in their greenhouses now this past week, and they died even within the greenhouse because there's just there's not enough sun to really warm up even in the greenhouse. And it seems the only thing that really likes this is the grass. <laughs> and the grass doesn't certainly doesn't mind it. Um, or probably not fertilizer uh, for mowing quite as often as what we normally would. We normally this time of year, I'm mowing my grass at least once a week, sometimes every five days. And, you know, it's, it's probably more like every 10 days now. So if you don't like mowing your grass, it's a good spring. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to like, for growing veggies in particular um, and then for fruit trees, I mean, we have a short growing season at the best of times. Last year, being an exception that the apples were outrageously great last year. But I have the feeling this year our apples are not even going to get a chance to ripen. You're right. I have a little crab apple, and uh, boy, did that ever uh, produce last year. Oh, last year was a bumper crop for so, oh so much stuff. Um, the only consolation this year, because last summer was such a great summer for growing, um, a lot of our shrubs actually are going to probably put on a very good flowering show at some point, even if they're a month behind normally. But I know last year the rhododendrons at the Botanical Garden were just sort of a mediocre display at best. This year they're all smothered with flower buds. So later on in June, early July, it'll be a bumper crop of blossoms for sure. And lilacs, I hope they're my favorite. Well, I've been sort of looking around the city now, and, and despite the fact that this time last year the lilacs were in full bloom, um, and I'm certainly nowhere near that right now, but what few lilac trees I've seen appear to have a good set of flowers coming along. So, you know, just got to be patient, and maybe by the early part of July we'll actually see them. So is there any rule of thumb now once, we hope to this to be the case, but once start, things start to warm up a bit, is there anything a gardener can do and say, okay, well, maybe it's not going to make sense to plant this now because the season is so shortened. Maybe I should go with these crops instead. Right, exactly. So anytime, you know, last year people were growing tomatoes outdoors and they were doing really, really well because it was such a warm, long summer. This year I expect that the uh, the tomatoes outside may be a bit of a challenge. Um, any warm season crops like melons or zucchinis, um, those kind of things may also be a bit of a challenge this year. Now, of course, you know, come 1st of July, the temperatures could suddenly shoot up and hit mid-20s every day, in which case these things will, will catch up again um, in that regards. But certainly in the short term, we'll say, don't rush to put out any warm season crops or even warm season annuals, you know, like things like marigolds and that. They don't like to have cold temperatures. Uh, pansies on the other side are perfectly fine in this, these kind of conditions. And in regards to vegetables, things like lettuces, um, the cabbages, turnips, they're reasonably you know, good for cooler temperatures, although this is a little bit of exceptional as far as cool is concerned. But on the positive side, I do have potatoes breaking the ground, so there's hope. There is hope. Um, I did notice, and you mentioned the fruit trees uh, from last year, but I I have noticed the one thing that is coming in my garden in abundance, and I know you've talked to us about this before, are maple um, seedlings. Yes, it was, you know, this whole idea of a bumper crop of fruit. And, of course, maple seeds are just a form of fruit uh, for a maple tree. And they were a bumper crop last year, and we're seeing the evidence now with uh, millions and millions of little seedlings popping up in our gardens. Uh, They certainly don't mind the cold weather. Um, And as a gardener, 
you know, now's the time to get out there, try to pull up all, as many of those little seedlings out of your garden as you can before the rest of your flowers start to grow up and, and hide the little seedlings. Because they'll take root and then it's harder to get them out. <laughs> exactly. Each year that they're there, their roots are getting deeper and deeper. So, you know, even just when the seedlings are only two or three years old, they can have a root that goes down over a foot deep. So it can be challenging then to pull them out at that stage. And is there any benefits to this kind of cooler weather? Like, is it keeping pests down? Uh, one would think that. And uh, I was just out in my own garden this morning, and I have roses that have little grubs in them already, uh, and yet they barely have leaves that are noticeable. So, you know, when it comes to the insects, nothing's going to hold them back, I'm afraid. Alas, uh, it might not be that uh, exciting a growing season uh, by what you're saying, but uh, we always live in hope. That's why we live in Newfoundland and Labrador. I really appreciate your time. Okay, you're very welcome. And like I said, you know, we, we've had a spring like this one time before. I can't remember what year it was, but June just continued really miserable, maybe not quite so miserable as this. And the 1st of July came in like into the 20s and it just stayed there. So, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed, keep your toes crossed, and, and, and hope for the best. Todd Boland, thank you. You're very welcome. So, Claudette, are your toes crossed? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's all we have to do. Like you said, just cross our fingers and hope for the best. Oh. Uh. Although, not surprising about maples. Maples seem to be so sturdy, grow just about anywhere. But well, I tell you, they're growing. They are growing they are everywhere. In cracks, like in, in areas where you think nothing is growing, there could be a maple tree shoot up. Yeah, and it's true because I have two maples in my backyard, mm-hmm. and one was just laden with seed last year right. just like hanging and that they'd even that the seeds even stayed on after the leaves went but obviously they dropped at some point yeah. over the course of the winter and they're coming up everywhere thousands of them thousands upon thousands i i wonder how many people i, I know there's a bit of a culture here but you know the tapping of the maple syrup and mm-hmm. that i mean it, i can see why it would be like a growing popular hobby here where we have such sturdy maple trees we do but we don't have the sugar maple they're not ah, as right. Interesting. The ones that you get in Quebec and Ontario right. and Vermont and all those, those areas, you, you'll, you'll see them occasionally. Yeah, because I know Pippi Park or would have all yeah. these demos. Do that's right. You, you see them occasionally, but most of our maples are the old Norway maples. Mm-hmm. They're a different. Uh, now you, I, I understand you can tap them. Yep. And you can get, but it's maples. not as like the Cabana Sucre. Yeah. In oh man. Quebec. Well, I grew up in the Montreal area, so I remember it well. We we used to go sugaring off every oh. spring. In school get everybody get on the bus and go with the snow in the troughs yeah you do something with the ice right you pour it on the well yeah you get these big troughs of snow they just take shovels full of snow and put them in these big troughs that are just gouged out big um tree trunks okay and you know you got these little benches along them and you have your popsicle stick and then they take the big vat of uh fresh um maple syrup and they pour it and it turns into candy and you just put your popsicle stick in it and roll it around and it comes out in a big thing and then you oh, get it in your hair and you get it all over your clothes <laughs> and you get it all over your face it's worth it hey oh man there's yeah. nothing like it it's uh it's the one of the big things i miss Missed. about um about that part of the country mm-hmm. yeah wow
Now you got me all nostalgic. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my father has a, a sugar maple that uh, we took from a seedling. From, oh, really? From up in Quebec. So I, I know where he I, lives. <laughs> I, keep, I keep thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to tap that sucker one of these days. I'm tapping it. Anyway, there you go. Uh, I'd tap that. Well, coming up, <laughs> we're going to get some uh, detail on the cabinet shuffle um, from Richard Duggan. He's going to be joining us immediately after the news with Noah Shepard. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. Uh, thanks, uh, Noah and Claudette. And just that reminder that there is an accident right now on the Trans-Canada Highway west of Soldiers Pond, as Claudette just pointed out. A vehicle overturned in the median there, so you can expect some slowdowns in that area as emergency crews respond to the scene. Well, Premier Andrew Fury shuffled his cabinet today. And while uh, not overly surprising, given the news uh, regarding um, uh, Derek Bragg, um, the extent of this cabinet shuffle might come as a bit of a surprise. Uh, anyway, uh, Richard Duggan, a VOCM news reporter and legislative reporter, was at Government House today. Richard, are you there? Hi, Linda. So tell us what ha- what came out of it. Well, thank you, Lynn. So as you mentioned, um, not surprising given uh, Derek Bragg's announcement and really his involvement in this is really the emotional crux of the afternoon, uh, both uh, Minister Bragg, who, by the way, looks to be doing quite well uh, following uh, the procedure that he had to have uh, following his cancer diagnosis. He seems to be doing quite well. Um it was an emotional afternoon for him, uh, for the premier. Both were, you know, visibly emotional uh, throughout the afternoon. So I'll start with Derek Bragg. Um, he is now uh, a minister without a portfolio, and what that basically means is that he's still in cabinet. Um, he can still provide advice. He can still, you know, sit in on on cabinet meetings and whatnot. Uh, but he doesn't have any specific duties, which. Of course, will bode well for him now on his road uh, to recovery. But there are several other changes precipitated uh, by this as well. Uh, taking over Derek Bragg's former portfolio of fisheries is Elvis Loveless, who um, had been in that position before. Uh, Paul Pike is now in cabinet. He is now the uh, Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. Uh, John Haggie has switched from education to municipal and provincial affairs. Um, John Abbott is now the Transportation and Infrastructure Minister, and Crystalline Howell is the new Education Minister. Uh, so several fairly significant changes there, Linda, uh, to tell you about. Uh, a bunch of changes, um, and when we asked uh, the Premier about the changes, uh, you know, he said that this was brought on, of course, by the news uh, from Derek Bragg, but um, also as well, um, you know, he also mentioned that his government is about halfway through their mandate now, and it's not uncommon for uh, governments to, to want to shake things up at about the halfway point, and uh, that is what happened today. 
Yeah, it's interesting to see some of these changes. Of course, uh, uh, John Abbott uh, had been um, very much um, involved in his uh, former portfolio of children, seniors, and social development. So that's going to raise some questions about bringing in uh, someone new to uh, Cabinet to take over that very, very important portfolio, especially at this particular juncture in our history. And um, the whole idea of a minister without a portfolio, is that something that's new? You know what? I'm not entirely sure if that is a new concept or not. I, um, I'd have to check on that. Um, certainly from my time in covering uh, provincial politics, uh, it, it's certainly not something that I have ever heard of. Um, so I, I would have to check on that. I'm not 100 percent on if this is something that has ever been done before. Um, that's something I'm not sure of. And uh, you say Derek Bragg was there today. He was present. Derek Bragg was there today um, because he was sworn in as minister without a portfolio. And, you know, he given everything, uh, it, it was mentioned today that, you know, he's just a couple weeks out from uh, the procedure that he had to have done. And he, he looks to be doing quite well. In fact, um, after uh, we had done our uh, post swearing in interviews, uh, he came over to chat with us uh, very briefly. And, you know, he, he, his spirits are up and he was even cracking a few jokes and, and making us all laugh. So uh, he seems to be doing quite well. And again, that was really it was that was the emotional part of the afternoon. You know, um, the premier after each um each new minister takes their oath. Uh, he would go over, shake their hand, give them a hug. And you notice that he hugged Derek Bragg a little bit tighter. And he hugged him a couple of times. Um, and even at one point, you know, he, Derek Bragg, he, he held things together really well. But you could tell you, he, he was sniff, sniffling a little bit. So you, and I noticed him wipe away a couple of tears. Um, and at one point, I noticed that uh, Elvis Loveless had put his arm around him. Um, he had his family there with him today. Um, so obviously an emotional day for him, but uh, seems to be doing quite well, all, all things considered. And, uh, I mean, our experience here uh, as reporters with Derek Bragg has always been that he's been, uh, you know, very gregarious, very uh, sort of off the cuff. Um, uh, so uh, did you see the same kind of Derek Bragg there today when he came over and spoke with you, you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. He, you know, still the same personality, still still that same attitude that we've always seen out of Derek Bragg. And uh, it was heartwarming to see knowing what he had been going through. And, you know, we had even seen the pictures before today uh, that he posted on his social media, uh, you know, and, and so we were aware of, of what he had been going through and, and to see him in, in such good spirits, you know, still quite a ways away from a full recovery, but uh, still to be in such good spirits. Um, it, it was, it was uh, equal parts heartbreaking and heartwarming, uh, if that makes any sense. Indeed. And to know that he was uh, probably, um, you know, dealing with this uh, during the height of that um, that uh, crab price dispute. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to, to be at the center, really, of uh, one of the most emotionally charged and controversial uh, uh, 
ton, uh, things, especially in the fishery, and that I can never remember seeing dating back, you know, years. Uh, you know, certainly would have played a toll. And what we saw um, in the House of Assembly when we would uh, report on the, the crab price disputes and, and the things that were going on in the fishery was that you know he was still coming in and still uh, giving giving his all to uh, that portfolio and. Um, you know, so at the center of something that was so controversial, at the same time dealing with this, because we, we don't know how long he's he's really known um, that something was going on, you know, to be dealing with that um, and also being at the center of a very controversial um, situation in that regard, um, undoubtedly, and, you know, it, it speaks to the level of professionalism that that is there. Um, and speaking of the fisheries, uh, Elvis Lovelace, of course, as we mentioned, is the new fisheries minister, and um, uh, that was even brought up when he, when it was his turn to come to come up and speak, and there was a chuckle in the room about how, you know, it's a difficult portfolio to step into with some very difficult and serious issues right now, and uh, he even said that, you know, he's looking forward now to, to tackling things and, and working on the change that the premier had said would be coming following uh, the price disputes earlier this year. Richard Duggan, really appreciate this update. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. That's uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan about that uh, cabinet shuffle today. Well, when we come back after the break, we're going to, uh, would you believe, the school year is coming to an end. We'll uh, speak with NLTA President uh, Trent Langdon, and we'll get uh, some more news out of the uh, APEC conference in St. John's this week. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Well, I barely can get my mind around it, but the school year is drawing to a close. Kids are getting excited for the summer break, of course. I have uh, one young fella who can't wait. Trent Langdon is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association, and he joins me now. Hi, Trent. Hey, Linda. Good to speak with you. Yeah, so, I mean, it's hard to imagine. I still got to shake my head. This is the last full week of school. <laughs> yeah, when this time strikes every year, it's uh, it's, it's like the years are going in and then all of a sudden it's here. So I'm sure every teacher in the province is feeling the same way. So how would you categorize, I suppose, the the year that was 2022-23? Uh, yeah, uh, so uh, certainly complicated. Um, some successes, no doubt, but certainly complicated. Uh, uh, we we started off the year with uh, obviously COVID in the hopefully in the rearview mirror, but we all know it's still there and it's still kind of interfering. Um, but as a school system, we we've had to charge forward and 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 uh, be as uh, positive and and progressive as, as we can be. So ultimately, that's where we found ourselves starting the year. So it's been an eventful one. Um, what would you consider the highlights? Uh, certainly highlights. Uh, again, to have a full school year is, is a good thing. Uh, to to have our kids in, in face-to-face learning, very positive. Um, we, you know, our schools, I, I think the best thing to focus on is what a lot of our individual schools have accomplished. You, you just look at their website, websites, their uh, their social action uh, or social media story coverage, uh, and it, it's unbelievable, really, what schools have been able to accomplish in spite of the challenges that that we've been we've been facing. So to have a pretty much a full school year under our belts, um, with with things running as they should be uh, from a, from an activity stance and from a supportive children's stance, I think that's that no doubt can be deemed a successful year. 
what kind of challenges remain? Well, that's certainly going to chew up the majority of our conversation, perhaps. I, I'm a very positive person by nature, but at the same time, I'm I'm charged with the with the job of uh, outlining what, what needs to change. And uh, um, this particular year is, is, is certainly highlighted coming out of COVID, uh, the um, recruitment and retention challenges that are, are currently in the system, no different than a lot of other professions. Um, the difference for us, though, I think as teachers is that um, we're generally in triage mode all the time and... Uh, the tagline you would have heard throughout, from us throughout the year, the association, is uh, the hidden reality that uh, uh, we always seek to have qualified educators on the ground and in our, on our front lines. But uh, due to uh, shortages in substitute teachers and, uh, and certain positions not being filled, uh, we've had to rely upon uh, retirees a fair bit to come back. Uh, many times those positions have not been filled, and in some cases, We've had to rely upon emergency supply teachers, of which a grade 12 diploma is is all that's needed. So uh, that's worrisome as as a profession that uh, we're going to start relying on uh, uh, quick fixes to to solve uh, immediate issues, acute issues, uh, when there needs to be a long-term vision and plan for, for what's going on. And any any improvements when it comes to recruitment and retention? Any indicators that, you know, changes are coming? Well, we, we've seen some, I, I guess, a, a positive move is, this, is the NLESD did hire a recruiter uh, to, to work on some of the challenges that are around the province. And that, that's positive. Whenever you put uh, a position in charge of that, that's, that's positive. Uh, and we have seen some improvement in positions being filled uh, to date, not all of them, but uh, some of the approaches at incentivizing some positions and so on have, have really paid off. Uh, but there are still, there's still substantial work to be done. Um, the benefit is uh, it's only June, uh, but uh, we also know very well as educators and, and primarily our administrators know that the summer goes very quickly when you're trying to hire and, and start your school year. So uh, I mean, making sure June, July, and August are, are well served uh, by the, or well used by the districts, both districts, to, to get their hiring done. Uh, and while recognizing the challenges uh, that are out there is, is going to be essential. And, of course, um, rural Newfoundland and Labrador, that's where the real challenges lie, I suppose. Is, are, are there creative approaches that can be taken to recruiting teachers in those kinds of areas? Yeah, ultimately so. And I, I really do believe it's uh, we, we, it is not a one-size-fits-all for this province. You know, trying, trying to make sure that certain areas are, are covered off is going to be uh, need to be a focus. In many ways, there needs to be different approaches for different, each area. But ultimately, I'll use Labrador as an example. The, the north coast of Labrador just had a conversation last night with a bunch of teachers up there. Um, very overwhelmed. They went the entire year with significant uh, positions still unfilled. They, they wore the weight of that all year. Uh, you would have recalled uh, in, in the news the protest by parents last fall uh, when um, many of the students, the high school students, were forced into online learning and, and then there being um, uh, broadband issues for, for Internet use and so on. So that's the challenge that they faced, and there was not, never any real resolution to it up there. Um, and in, in my discussions with them, it, uh, it, it has to be approached uh, differently when you're talking about remote and isolated areas. Uh, just the cost of living alone to attract people to those areas, um, there needs to be some remuneration for people who are going to make that shift. Um, just the travel in and out of uh, remote northern areas, uh, so expensive. And 
and uh, uh, and just to get uh, your supplies, your your belongings to where it needs to go, um, you know, all of those things up and above what the actual job entails makes it extremely difficult to recruit in those areas. So, uh, I really do believe. Uh, the government of Final Labrador needs to look at, at remote and rural as a separate discussion, uh, or sorry, I should say remote and isolated as a separate discussion, um, and and then look at some of the larger areas, or I guess the more connected areas uh, in, in other ways. But bottom line is going to come down to incentivization and, and reducing the barriers like the cost of living and travel challenges uh, to get people in those positions. You and I have spoken a lot about uh, class size and composition over the years, but COVID sort of put those kinds of uh, concerns and, um, you know, on the back burner, not on the back burner, but you know what I mean. COVID sort of dominated all discussion for a long time. So where are we with that, uh, those concerns that you've had in the past? Yeah, much the same situation. And uh, the trial allocation review, which came down, made some recommendations. Uh, there was three people that were tasked with uh, doing the review. And uh, many of the recommendations we certainly agreed with, others we had concerns with. Uh, but ultimately, the teacher allocation review is what will dictate moving forward uh, class sizes and, and allocations. But um, it's that that is by far one of the biggest issues when the school system is up and running at full capacity that is one of the biggest issues uh, that faces us let alone when we're short people so you can imagine um, uh, the class size piece uh, that that's we, we use that tagline for because the public understands that the more children you have in front of you the less likely or the less uh, I should say the less opportunity you have to uh, to have regular and, and consistent connection with those students is, is it's a challenge um, but the composition piece is probably more so the discussion item within education circles. Um, so it's the class size, but the composition, the, the learning needs that may be in the room, uh, the behavioral needs, um, the mental health needs, the social emotional needs, all of those things contribute. You, you know, you put 30 adults in, in a room and every single day for five, six hours, and you can imagine uh, after a year <laughs> what kind of things emerge, uh, let alone children who uh, have yet to mature and have yet to gone through that developmental phase where we would expect them to be able to, to cope and so on. So uh, it's in many ways for teachers and educators, it's the composition uh, in addition, obviously, to the class size. Now, uh, there has been a lot of uh, discussion about inclusive education, and we just saw that rally at Confederation Building. That must have left you feeling uh, very encouraged. Uh, and I'm glad you said that. Uh, you know, it certainly encouraged, uh, very empowered for in being able to speak out and support uh, the, our, my educators, our educators that are in the system that are doing their best uh, to to uh, meet the needs of all children, to give them opportunities for learning, to give them an open space, a refuge uh, to, to come and be safe and, and to be themselves. Um, and so often when these kinds of protests take place, the, the spin can often be that this is, this is a negative thing, that this protest had to take place in the first place and so on. But I, I saw that day, as, uh, and I had said in my speech at the rally, that uh, uh, to view it as a celebration, LGBTQAI plus rights in this province have come a long way. We've got a long way to go. I consider myself an ally. Uh, but there's a lot to celebrate, and uh, but anytime there's any kickback from from the public or certainly from outside the province, uh, we cannot let that dictate or dominate uh, the the news channels. 
we need to focus on what's happening here. It's good to know about it. It's good to respond as needed. But many times that, that negativity and that uh, uh, focus on diminishing the rights of others takes precedence when the discussions come up. We need to focus on what good is happening, and there is a lot of good happening in our schools. That's NLTA President Trent Langdon uh, with some thoughts as the school year draws to an end. Well, the APEC conference in St. John's this week heard a very interesting panel discussion on everything from new home construction and how to make that structure as energy efficient as possible to plans for another berth at the North Atlantic shipping terminal in Placentia Bay and the labor crunch in the province as companies try to find people to do the job at hand. APEC CEO David Chandry re- uh, moderated the panel, which included home builders, North North Atlantic Refining and Hydro. Questions came from the floor. First up, Alexis Foster, CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association, Newfoundland and Labrador branch, answering a question about making new and existing homes more energy efficient. Um, so one of the key ways to address uh, climate change is to address the existing housing stock. That's something that hasn't been done as an, or as focused on. Um, so that is something that we're actually recommending as well. Uh, so there's the Energuide rating system. Uh, so we're encouraging right now uh, to work with the provinces to have the Energuide uh rating system label put on all houses at the time of resale. Uh, that's something that we're looking at, uh, looking at the Energuide system being um, expanded a little bit and having more tools brought in uh, for that as well. Uh, we are very mindful of climate change in the building side of things and the residential c- uh, construction industry. Um, we're also all for investing in uh, innovation and R&D for lower, lower or neutral cost housing as well. Um, so there's lots of new technologies that are coming out uh, in the home building uh, sector so we're seeing things like uh, there's this new technology uh, it's called aero barrier and uh, it's one of our members so I'm allowed to talk about it but it's it's just a phenomenal technology where they depressurize your home Um, they put this mist up into the air and the mist can find holes to like a half an inch or a quarter of an inch uh, and it will actually cover your holes uh, make your home more energy efficient uh, it'll actually it can actually bring your uh, rating your air exchange rating down from 1.5 which is the guideline down to like 0.5 it's a phenomenal technology so it just shows how the industry has been innovating to try to address some of these concerns So that's Alexis Foster, CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Uh, Here's Ted Lomond, president of North Atlantic, who spoke about expanding wharfing infrastructure at their facility in Placentia Bay. Um, So, uh, Ted, Ted, a question that's come in for you specifically. Um, Can you elaborate on the marine terminal infrastructure investment and how you see Newfoundland companies playing a role in that scope? Uh, sure. So we've already, as I mentioned, we, we have a very large uh, import-export uh, terminal for, for distillates and gasoline and come by chance. Uh, we bring in product for the needs of Newfoundland and Labrador. Usually it ships around 300,000 barrels uh, at a time. We also import and handle cargoes coming in for Brea in terms of, you know, feed stocks, um, you know, um, soy oil, whatever the case might be. Um, so we have that infrastructure there. But that infrastructure was built... Uh, when the refinery was producing about 130,000 barrels a day at max capacity. Um, Brea will produce around 18,000 barrels a day. It will jump up to maybe 24, a little bit higher, a mix of 
renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. So there's already excess capacity there and the infrastructure can handle vessels much larger than are currently being used. So we are looking at making some investments around it, maybe addition of another berth uh, to better manage some of the infrastructure there to be able to import and export product, maybe some work around laydown areas, a bit of road work, that sort of thing. So that's Ted Lomond, president of North Atlantic, and some of the discussion held at the APEC conference in St. John's this week. Well, that's it for us for today. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. In the meantime, have a great evening.